You're listening to a Hebrew in Israel podcast with Yoel HaLevi, exploring the language, culture, and history of the Bible. For more information, visit us at hebrewinisrael.net. So everyone, you're all here again, second time for this week. Uh, this is actually the recording for Kitavo. And um, the moment I was done recording Kitetse, which was literally a couple minutes ago, I realized I forgot to speak about something about the subject of polygamy. So this is a supplement for Kitetse for a moment. A very common argument regarding polygamy is a discussion about Adam and Eve being created man and woman. And also uh, Noah's Ark, that there was only male and female. There was always couples and there was never more than just couples there. And also Noah himself and his wife and so on. This is a very, this is a very, very important argument that I, I, I do understand the point that people come from when they say this. And I accept the idea. As I said, I'm not pro-polygamy at all. And the normal natural situation of most people back in the day, uh, biblical times and so on, was most people married to one wife. And as I said in the previous recording, most people married one wife because it was an economic decision. And also, you know, I don't think that people would have too much energy to start dealing with loads and loads and loads of children and so on. From what we actually know about family, the burial sites, to say from the Bronze Age, is that most families, most people which were buried as families, you see that there's not more than one wife, and you see that there, there aren't piles and piles of children. Most families, normal-sized, even for us today, normal-sized, you know, four or five kids, even three kids, one wife, it was very common. and So, yes, there is something to the idea that Adam and Eve were only a couple, and in Noah's Ark there were only couples, um, you know, and Abraham really married only one wife, and Isaac really married only one wife. Jacob is a, Jacob was tricked into marrying more than one wife, by the way. But what's really important here is that this, this argument, by the way, was brought also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and what I mentioned, the, the, the Temple Scroll, and uh, they use that argument, and they also use the argument that David did not know the Torah. No one opened up the Ark to see what the Torah says before um, uh, before the, the times when the Temple was built. So David didn't know, but even there, there's a problem with this. First of all, there's nothing in the Torah that says that the, the, the Torah was the Torah was placed in the Ark. It was actually said it was placed beside the Ark. So the Torah was something accessible, and also it was very clear that King David knew parts of the Torah, especially from Exodus, because he points out. That uh, when when he's given the, the 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 parable of the of the the sheep of the of the poor man, he mentions the law of paying four times and so on. So King David did know the Torah, and I think the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, the the, the Yachad sect, uh, completely completely misunderstood a lot of things. But in any case, just just to mention that because I think during the recording, people thought also that idea came to mind, so I had to at least talk about that for a couple, for about two minutes. Any case, so Parashat Kitavo. Kitavo uh, is really we're coming towards the end of everything uh, of of the parasha of the of the cycle. I actually only started the cycle in Bamidbar, so there's still going to be recordings for Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. But in any case, um, in this parasha we have a large section of blessings and curses, which I really don't want to go into. That this is uh, stuff that I've spoke about already. Uh, in other other programs, those who are interested, you can just go to uh, Talking Torah and you can uh, you can listen to those recordings. 
But I do want to expand a, about a few things that we have here. So this, I don't know how long this recording will be, but there's a few interesting points here. So the first thing we have here is the concept of first fruits. First fruits, what, what exactly are first fruits? First fruits basically are, uh, they're called bikurim. And it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be the first of the fruits. I mean, for what happens if the first, fruit, for, first fruits that come out are horrible? They take ugly fruits to the temple? Well, one can argue that, yes. Why one can argue this? Because at the end, I can't remember if it's Leviticus or Numbers. Give me a second here. Yeah, the end of Leviticus mentions that when you count, when you do a tithing from your animals, and every tenth animal you mark under the shevet, which is basically a stick, you say this one, you pull it out, the, uh, you can't exchange them. It says in uh, Leviticus 27, uh, verse 33, says, And he will not, he will not uh, supervise between bad and good and bad, and he will not exchange them. And if you do exchange them, he and his exchange will both be holy, they will not be redeemed. So one can argue that first fruits is literally first fruits. And unfortunately, there's some tractor traveling around this area at the moment, he's been making noise for a while. Anyhow, but it doesn't disturb anyone. And so it's possible that we're talking about, about literally the first fruits, no matter what they are. But on the other hand, this concept is also known as Bikurim. Bikurim comes from the word Bikhor, which is Bikuriad Matcha. And Bechor is the prime of something. Okay? Bechor is the, is, can be firstborn. Bechor is usually prime, better, and so on. So, does a person bring literally first fruit, or the best of the fruit can be debated? And it gives us an interesting de detailing here of how it's actually done. So, you place it in a tene, which is a basket. You will go to the place which the Lord your God, your God will choose to dwell his name there. Now, I've, I've mentioned this before, that I'm actually very opposed to the academic understanding that the, that the Book of Deuteronomy promotes the idea of one site of worship. I think the fact that it leaves it anonymous, and the fact that, it's in, that, that the Torah never indicates exactly where it's going to be, anonymous, basically the same thing, that the Torah is really saying there can be more than one place. Now, how do I say this? Because you go to the end of the Ten Commandments, and it says, any place that you will call my name, I will come and bless you. Which says that any place that you erect some kind of a temple, some kind of a shrine for my name, name here, name there, so there's a connection here, uh, I will come and bless you. Now, I've read a lot of papers about it that try to say that there's a transition because everything in the mind of Bible scholars is very evolutionary. That there's an interesting statement by, uh, by Segal in his book about the Bible. He makes this claim that because of, because of the world in the, in the 18th century, sorry, in the 19th century and early 20th century, everything was evolution, evolution, evolution. They perceived everything as being some kind of an evolution. So they're trying to find an evolution between Exodus and Deuteronomy. However, the lines here can actually be very different. That Deuteronomy and Exodus are very aware of one another and understand where each one of them is coming from and they correlate with one another the information. And therefore, one can argue that when Deuteronomy speaks about the place that God will choose, it doesn't necessarily mean that that the, that 
God is going to choose one place. The same way that Exodus says, any place you will call by my name, I will come and bless you, correlates with the idea, can be argued, correlates with the idea that when God comes and blesses you, it means that he's chosen the place. So the question is, who does the choosing? And the chances are very high that it's us and God simultaneously. And when God agrees to the place we chose, he will come and bless us. And if he doesn't agree to the place he chose, that we chose, then he doesn't come and bless us, and we know it's not, the, it's not a place to go to. So there's some kind of a question here of exactly how places are chosen. So it also raises the question about King David. Did, did King David really intend, and remember, this is, this is a discussion to open up a discussion. This is not me saying absolute answer. I'm saying these are ideas I've been contemplating about for quite a while, and I've been trying to find answers and so on. And I find a difficulty with this idea that King David wanted one place of worship. I think King David wanted to create a centralized place, but never with the idea of removing other sites as well. Now, I know this kind of undermines the idea of the choosing of Jerusalem and the future of Jerusalem and so on. And this, as this relates to another discussion, what the prophets mean about Jerusalem and the whole Jerusalem, the centralization of Jerusalem in prophecy and so on. This is a, another subject by itself. But... We're talking about the intention of the Torah, not what happened later. Did the Torah really intend for us to have only one site? And also, if Jerusalem was chosen, doesn't mean there's only one site as well. And that might have, actually, that might have been a big debate during, during the middle of the Second Temple. That in Judea at one point, because of the connection between politics and how religion was entwined into it, they started pushing this idea of one site to try to centralize everything under the house of David. And really... The, the massive centralization had to do with politics, not really what God wanted. Even when the prophet spoke about Jerusalem being the center of everything, it's because it's enforcing, it's saying, yes, the house of David are the ones who are chosen. I know this This is going to sound, some, some people maybe even heretical, and I'm saying it's not my intention. There's a bit of a brainstorm here. That when the prophet said, God will dwell in Jerusalem, it's also enforcing the idea that the house of David is chosen, but I'm doubtful. Again, we have to comb the verses to find this, but I'm doubtful if even there the intention was to say there can't be other sites of worship. There's one main site, and that's where the name of God dwells in mainly. But could it be that other sites are not necessarily a problem? There's an interesting discussion about the book of Amos that, that, that debates this regarding you know, Amos and some of the earlier prophets don't really speak much. This is a claim, I can't remember exactly who said this, but there's a claim about this that, and I heard this from one of my professors as well, there's a claim that Amos wasn't really involved in the discussion about the one side of worship because it wasn't really a, it wasn't really that important at that stage. It became important later, and especially after the defeat of the, the defeat, winning, whatever you want to call it, of the Assyrians, um, that the Assyrians uh, couldn't defeat Jerusalem, Jerusalem was amplified even more. There's, where is this? There's a lot more going on in the prophecies and so on than meets the eye. So there's a lot more to say here, but this discussion is not a discussion about prophecy. Anyhow, this was a sidetracking to something that I think is interesting. But in any case, you go to this place, will come to the priest, which will, which will be in those days. And this is a very interesting, for me, this is a very interesting language of the book of Deuteronomy, which will be in those days. It seems to be that the Torah here is giving authority for whomever is alive at that time. 
And whoever is alive is the one who is the authority. Now, I recommend, by the way, to go and listen to the recordings I've done uh, on Talking Torah, uh, about Oral Torah. And I address this subject. I, it's, it really will help you understand this even better. But it seems to be the book of Deuteronomy is standing on the idea of, of whoever is in those days is the one that decides how things are done. And this this raises a question about how traditions work. Was it, was it really tradition or did sometimes people interpret things differently in each time and so on? But what a Torah is doing here is it's giving absolute authority for whomever is alive at the time. And this raises a question, so... If I'm alive now, do I do I need to really care what was said before me? Because we have a problem that there are almost no texts from the first temple period. But it could be that there was an ideology behind it. It wasn't that people didn't know, didn't know how to read and write. This is one of the claims that some scholars try to say that the, the Torah wasn't written before the 8th century because no one knew how to read and write. It seems to be nonsense. It actually is nonsense. The reason we don't find a lot of writing is because people didn't write that much because there was no point. To write meant you need some, you needed a, a, a uh, an audience to this. It was actually one of the first things. I remember when the first class I walked in university when we talked about historiography, which is a history with a very specific agenda. Instead of giving us details of what happened, it gives us details from a very specific perspective, from the perspective of, of also very specific characters. One of the first thing my professor said, for someone to write a book like the Book of Kings, there has to be an audience as well. So, that, so the same thing here. For, for someone to write down decrees and laws and so on, there has to be an audience for this. But really, Torah, there are only very few places where Torah says you have to write something. So for example, when you send a woman free from marriage, you write her a sefer kritut. You give her a, a book of cutting. Why? Because she needs documentation that she's allowed to remarry. So the same thing, with, for example, with a slave. When a slave is released, he's, he's sent away with a book that probably says that he's allowed, he's a free man. You know, and, and when people did transactions, they wrote things down. But I think that this was also a society that was very oral. And we know this from a lot of places. That, 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 so there are many societies in this region were oral. So they didn't really write everything down. And this is one of the, also the reasons why we, we, we find very, very few um, uh, written monuments you know, one of the things that are interesting is that there were kings, there were kings of, of Samaria and there were kings of Judea, and the kings of Samaria were actually, the kings of Israel were actually very, pretty important kings, but even they didn't write anything down. They did massive acts, and they went out to war in coalitions and so on, and they still didn't write down. I think that, I think there was a culture here that saw two things. First of all, you don't write down something unless you have to. Uh, so there wasn't, they didn't have the, the pompous behavior of the Assyrian Babylonians and Aramaic kings that went around saying, I did this, and I did that. They didn't, they didn't think like that. So there was the culture was a, a culture that wrote down very, very few things because that's the way they saw things. That's the way they understood the world. You don't write every single thing down. Um, but in any case, going back to what we have here, so we have the whole concept of authority. So you don't write anything down, which means you don't, you're not going to enforce your authority and your time on latter generations. And by the way, in Ashkenaz, in European Jewry, this practice was continued for a very, very long time. Rabbis wrote down their opinions about things, but they never wrote it down as a psak, as a, as a, as a, a buying uh, uh, decision that everyone after them has to, be, has to do it, which raises questions about a lot of the practices today about the Shulchan Aruch and so on, which really contradicts the practices of older Judaism. This is a I think something that if most Orthodox people hear this and they'll cringe, and I know, I cringed the first time it came to my mind.
But anyhow, you come to the temple and you make this confession. And the confession is always related somehow to saving Israel, the Exodus, and so on. Everything, because the, the first fruits, the thanksgiving of the first fruits is related to the land. The land is related to the promises. And, and the sinning on the land has to do with God promising it to the patriarchs. This is why it starts with Arami of David. It relates to Jacob, who had to live in exile, which, which imitates the idea of Israel being in exile in Egypt. This is why these two points are connected. But also the fact that we sit on the land because God chose to do so. And we have to, but we are in a covenant with God. And this is why it mentions the Exodus. We're in covenant with God because God kept his side of the promise and he brought us out and saved us and gave us a Torah. So the first fruits is, is, is the Israelite. This doesn't abide, by the way, to priests and Levites. So for example, I don't have to do this, but it, it, it's a, it's a mechanism of reminding Israel that we live on this land not as a right, but as part of a covenant, part of a promise. And this is why it's also done in the temple. And then it says, after you do this, you can go and, 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 and rejoice. This is verse 11. And he will rejoice with all the good, all the produce which the Lord your God has given to you and your home. You and the Levit and the, and the sojourner within you. So here, also, Torah makes sure, as the Torah, as the Deuteronomy repeats over and over and over again, never forget the Levite. Never forget the Levite. Always take care of the Levite. Always take care of the sojourner. Why? Because these are people who don't have land. I, as a Levite, for example, do n- I'm, I'm not allowed to own land. That's one of the reasons why I live in an apartment building. I own air. <laughs> it's a bit of a joke, but it's also a little bit serious. I actually, I once contemplated buying land, and then I decided not to do so. Because I, as a Levite, I don't have my 48 cities, but I don't know if I'm allowed to transgress and go and buy my own land and say, okay, now I own land. Uh, so I'm not too sure how to deal with this, but for now I am refraining from buying property and so on. And also the Torah is making sure is because is, is Levites, you know, taking care, giving from yourself to someone else is not always an easy thing. So the Torah emphasizes over and over and over again. And even after the Torah emphasized this, it was abused over and over again. To this very day, you have so many people trying to, to grab other people's money, claiming different claims, I'm this, I'm that, and so on. And then people who are the ones with Torah actually says he's supposed to give to them, get ignored. The poor, the widow, um, you know, Levites, and so on. Then oh, there's also a few people I heard that start claiming they're Levites, and it's kind of interesting how it correlated with a recording I produced some time ago. But anyhow, without making any accusations, it's the funny thing that I, rec- I realized. The, the whole subject of money is so corrupted, it's, it's almost sick. Then we have verses 12 to uh, 15 that relate also to the subject of, of tithing. So when you finish to tithe or the tithing of the th- in the third year, the year of the tithe. This is a really interesting concept. And you will give to the Levite, the, the sojourner, the, the, the fatherless and the widow, and they will eat at your gates. What is this shnata ma'asel? This is an interesting thing, because on the one hand, in other parts of the Torah, especially in Numbers, it sounds as if you give a tithe every year to the Levite. On the other hand, it says on the third year, which is called the year of the tithing. So where, how do you organize this? I once made a recording about the whole 10% and so on. But to me, in my opinion, the way I understand it, it's called the year of the tithe, really because it relates to what it says in the beginning. When you finish tithing or your tithe, 
it seems to be that there's an internal cycle inside the seven-year cycle. There's a three-year system. And my opinion is that the third year is a year where you get rid of everything. In other words, because there are several types of tithe, and sometimes a family literally will not have the physical ability to finish all the tithes that they have, even if they take out the tithe to the Levite and give everything out. And, uh, but also there's no promise that enough Levites in their area for Levites to finish. So they put out and they take, people take whatever they take. And this, it's, it's a tithe, so you, you might have the responsibility of bringing it back to your house and keep it safe until someone else needs it. And by the end of the third year, you might be let, you might be stuck with a large quantity of tithe. Of things that are left from the tithe of the Levites, the things which are left from the tithe you take to the temple to celebrate, you'd be left with a lot of things lying around. So I think, in my opinion, is the year of the tithe, it's not that every th every third year you give a tithe to people. I think the tithe is every year, but this is a unique tithe. This is where you take anything that might be left over, including what you have to give on that year, and just put it out. And anyone, a Levite, anyone that's needy, a Levite, a sojourner, a father and a widow have the right to take from this. Up to now, everything was reserved to specific groups. Your tithe you take to, to Jerusalem. In our case, that we have Jerusalem, uh, the Jerusalem is the center of everything, and um, the one that you give to the Levites. At this point, because you might be left with things, you get rid of them, and this makes it very. This year is also unique, marked by the fact that there's again another confession that one makes, and this confession relates to. To uh, the man says, I gave to the Levite, to the, or the, 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 the sojourner fathers and the widow. But also it says in verse 14, I did not eat when I was a mourner. And I, and he did not get rid of it. I, not, I did not eat it, consume it. Ba'al can mean to burn, but also consume when I was unclean. So this doesn't relate just to giving to the Levite and so on. But also relates to what this person is allowed to consume. And this is why I hold of the opinion that the third year is a unique year on the sense that it's when you clear out your 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 stocks, you clear out anything that might be left. Because you can dry most of this fruit and grains can be dry and so on. So this can be a lot of things that went through a process of drying and, and making them pres and preserving them for the rest of the years and so on. And this is why I think it seems to be that the context here is more of a clear out than anything else. Um, and then, you know, it also relates to the keeping of the covenant, the keeping of of uh, of uh, the covenant with God that you fulfill other things. Remember, the land is not yours. You are living on the land as a as a sojourner to God. That you are living on the land as God allowing you to dwell there as part of the covenant. And because you're in the covenant, you have to take care of other people as well because this is not just yours. And if God decides to get rid of you, He'll get rid of you, and so on. So I think that if we read this section more in context and the things what the confession actually says then it's a confession, by the way. It's, not, it's really more of a proclamation um, that will recognize exactly what this third year is. It's not just every three years you give. And I actually met someone who claims every three years, but again, you have to read these things in detail. There was once this uh, discussion that I had with one of my professors about the, the wording of texts in the, in the Bible. And the thing that really came out, the thing that really, really stuck out to both of us was the fact that the language of the Bible in many places 
is very specific, very detailed. And sometimes you really have to go word by word to really pick out everything that's, that's being said. And it's not just someone's exercise in trying to find who I'm going to find some secrets and so on. We're really talking about that there's a thought behind how the text is designed. And there's a thinking process when the text was created. And it's, just a, it's not just random, someone rambled along. There's a way of thinking. Things are built in a coherent way. Words are chosen to relate to something else. As I said earlier, with the whole, with the whole, the Shaken Shemosham, putting his name to dwell there, it reminisces on what we have in Exodus and so on. So um, I think that it's very important to read these, these sections very, very closely. Um... Well, there's a lot of other things that can be said here. We have the blessings and the curses. Uh, there's an opinion that says, that, by the way, though the text we have in front of us in, in chapter 27 is only Aru Ha'ish. Aru, by the way, is the word for cursing. Kalal usually means the root le kalel usually means to disrespect. For example, um kalel avivi motumat. Many people translate he who curses his mother and his father will be put to death. However, we're not really talking about cursing. We're talking about disrespecting. So the, the form arul is more to put a curse on someone, to curse to to not just disrespect but to curse them, say that they're damned and so on. And there's an opinion actually says that in parallel to the curses there were also blessings. This is why you have the mountain of blessing and the mountain of cursing because the parallel of this was also saying blessings. That if it says arul ha'ish and then they said the opposite baruch ha'ish and so on. It's an opinion. The text doesn't t- say this, but it's it's an opinion. Another interesting thing here is, unlike the curses in the book of Leviticus, the blessing curse in the book of Leviticus, this doesn't doesn't necessarily end uh, with um, um, with a kind of a, 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 you know, a comforting element at the end. In Leviticus, it ends, you know, and even if in the land of of, uh, of exile, remember them and remember the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. Here, we actually don't really have that, which is very very interesting. In any case, uh, these are the subjects I want to talk about for Kitavo. Um, I hope people enjoyed this. I hope it wasn't too controversial. Sometimes some things that I, I might brainstorm about can be make cause people to jump. I actually had that this week as well with something else. Uh, I had to explain myself. So again, if, if, if you're not too sure what I meant, if it's not too clear, please, by all means, send me an email. Ask me about it. We can hash this over as well. And uh, we can come to a better understanding. I do not believe in just sitting by myself and I understand everything. I believe that we need to communicate and, and, and try to understand things to understand things together. In any case, everyone have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful Shabbat. I want to wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom.